Welcome to season six of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. This season features eight sessions from COVID-19, the orthopedic recovery, a virtual summit powered by DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. It was streamed live on May 29th, 2020. The summit was a global conversation on the challenges of resuming patient care in the context of an uncertain future and an ongoing pandemic. Let's join over 1,000 registrants from around the world and the world-class speakers DocSF is known for on the DocSF virtual stage. Welcome to our next session, the Digital Health Policy Response as part of DOCSF and the COVID-19 Orthopedic Recovery. Very specifically, we're going to spend some time in conversation with Kevin Schulman. Kevin, so where, where, where are we reaching you today? Where's home? Uh, I'm in uh, right outside of Stanford in uh, Menlo Park, California. So uh, beautiful, sunny Northern California. Well, it's so good to have you here. So, Kevin, you are best known as being clinician, physician. Um, so you've got a dual appointment. So I'm the nurse economist. You are the physician economist. So you're, you've got an appointment um, in Stanford in, as, as a professor of medicine, as well as over in the business school. And it's, your work really has been focused on digital health innovation, innovation and, and thinking about policy and the, econ- the health um, economics that how do you characterize your work yeah i i think that that's great i mean the uh how do we improve the value of healthcare for patients uh how do we do um how do we understand the cost of healthcare and how do we think about innovation as a way of transforming the economics of, of what we see right now yeah so we've invited you here really to help us think about um the digital health policy response and, and doing that in light of COVID-19. And you had a recent article that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. And your title of that is COVID-19, Healthcare's Digital Response. And I love the way you opened it in which you talk about that truly this pandemic is a result of our technological innovation. Why don't you, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about this article and what prompted you to write it and thinking about our healthcare response in the time of, or digital healthcare response in the time of COVID. Yeah. So thanks. I mean, if you if you think about pandemics of the past, you know the Spanish galleons uh, that were outside of uh, Venice that had to be quarantined for forty days offshore. You know, the spread of of infection was really slow. You know, in an incredibly short period of time, the entire globe now has been exposed. Uh, to COVID-19. And it's because we're in such a digital and interconnected world uh, that that's occurred. And the contrast there is between this, this incredibly fast digital world and our what we call in the article our analog approach to medicine, uh, which is very much bricks and mortar based. And what we've seen is this amazing capacity that we've had to move very quickly from bricks and mortar to virtual visits. At Stanford, we went uh, at the height of our uh, COVID response to about 70% of our clinical visits being remote. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, last night who's an urgent care physician. Half the visits uh, that he does with patients now, they never need to come in uh, and be seen. 
And so here's the potential that we've been talking about for a very long time of being demonstrated in front of us. And, and all of us migrated very quickly uh, to this new way of taking care of patients. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that you mentioned in the article is that we have built a system of care, model of care, uh, a payment, the financing, how we finance our care in a way that actually is more to do with transmitting the virus. I mean, when you think about busy waiting rooms, um, emergency departments, these are all the things that just cannot happen during um, an outbreak of a virus that we don't have a therapeutic and we don't have a vaccine for. So <laughs> that is quite interesting to think that our, our system of caring really is contributing to and really would um, increase the spread. Well, we had this, you know, obviously in SARS, we had entire hospitals were contaminated and had to be shut yeah. down. Um, we have this issue about the work, healthcare workforce and protecting the healthcare workforce. And then we have the issue about PPE shortages. So, you know, if a patient's coming in with symptoms, do I have enough material, you know, to, to keep myself and my office safe? And so this idea of remote visits really made a lot of sense. When I round in hospital medicine for the COVID positive patients, you know, we spend our time talking to them through FaceTime and uh, Zoom hangouts so, uh, or Zoom chats. It's uh, so the technology's all been there. We've just not thought about using it in the way we've decided to use it over the last couple months. And obviously, we, yeah, we wrote that no, article no, no. before mm -hmm. all this even happened. Yeah. Can you say more about the experience at Stanford going from what was what was your your rate of using digital technologies or virtual visits? Virtual you know, care? You know, it's uh, this is the Bay Area. Traffic is horrendous. Patients would come two hours for their follow up visits. Uh, and then in, within a month, we went to all of those now are remote Zoom visits. Uh, you know, if if um, patients need ancillary services like labs, we can arrange those. And so very quickly, you know, we just changed the experience of care for people. Uh, but that meant w people weren't coming in uh, that People weren't coming in the clinic. They weren't being exposed. The clinical staff weren't being exposed. The people behind the desk were not exposed. The people behind the desk were not congregating. They were keeping social distancing. The last time I was rounding, you know, we were thinking about the elevators. And we had two medical teams that were approaching the elevator at the same time. And I had to suggest to everybody we had to take separate elevators. You know, so it's very hard to social distance in the environments that we've created. Well, uh, the other part, too, is how how you are in an elevator, actually. So you uh, are you guys practicing that where you limit the number of people in an elevator to the um, sides of the wall that people can pay attention to? You know, we've gotten, uh, when I first was rounding in March, when the epidemic was first starting here, no one was wearing masks. Mm -hmm. uh, we were trying to figure out how do we screen people coming in. Obviously, visitors are not allowed. The last time I was rounding, Everyone was wearing masks. We get checked into the hospital. We have to do a symptom check uh, every right. single day. You know, and I think we've learned a lot in a very short period of time uh, about how to protect ourselves. The latest data I heard was actually amongst our residents, Stanford started to do serology testing. Uh, we only had one resident that uh, turned out to be COVID positive, And that person had been traveling abroad uh, uh, before uh, uh, during rotation. So most likely that it didn't happen here, thank goodness. And I hope your colleague is well. And They're doing recovered. well. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Um, so when we think about the, you want to say more about the article that you wrote? I mean, some of the, the points that you were making in here? Yeah. So, 
there are a couple of things about digital. So one is, you know, we went to telemedicine, which is still the same kind of visit that we were having. We were just doing that. Really. So that was a great benefit to, to patients. Uh, but to really go digital, there are a huge number of capabilities and ideas that you could use and deploy uh, that would help people. I'm very involved right now with some computer vision work. So for orthopedic surgeons, imagine the three-month or six-month visit was actually right. with computer vision assessing whether or not the gate uh, has returned to whatever the expectations were and very, with very precise levels of measurement. You know, as you think about all the different digital technologies that surround us each day, how would we use them in new and different ways to take care of patients? And, you know, we're just at, at the beginning of all this. So even, uh, you know, so specifically what happened around the time we published our article, Medicare did two things. One is they decided to pay for virtual visits the same way they pay at the same rate that they pay for in-person visits. So that was a huge benefit to us to, to move the migration. But the other was that they migrated, they used their enforcement discretion to say they weren't going to enforce HIPAA during this crisis. And so we could do things like Zoom and uh, FaceTime that may not have been HIPAA compliant. We would not have been able to do several months ago. Uh, Stanford's solution that we stood up actually was HIPAA compliant, which is kind of interesting. A lot of the payment models are still in-person models. It's not building a chat bot to take care of your post-op patients. Uh, it's, it's not using machine learning algorithms to try and predict who's going to be the highest risk patient coming in or how to do the best job and follow-up. And so the payment models are really to support more use of people uh, rather than think about how can we use the technology to really drive efficiency and creativity in the process. And you, when you're talking about the policies, oftentimes when we use the word policy, there is a tendency to have the mindset we're thinking at the federal level or the national level at a very high, you know, where there's laws and guidelines and compliance and regulations. There's a lot to be said about institutional policies or practice policies or professional disciplines. Can you, I think that that's one of the areas that oftentimes gets overlooked. Actually, at this moment in time, we have an interesting sandbox to innovate in. And there's, we've never seen as much freedom as we've had. What do we need to think about as far as practice and institutional policies that help us to, the technologies have made these things possible. The policy is what's creating what's permissible. Um, what if, I mean, you've had some very direct experience with Stanford, but what about some of these policies that we need to think about so that we can further, what does our policy response need to be so we can further these gains? Well, I, I think that's a great question. So a couple of things we talked about in the article. One, you know, it's remarkable. We've been debating these issues. I, I went back and found a telemedicine paper I wrote uh, 20 some odd years ago, um, you know, about virtual care for dialysis yeah. patients. You know, so we've been debating this for forever. And then all of a sudden in, in two months, we've changed the way our, our entire perspective on this. So there'll be a lot of pressure to go back. I mean, nobody likes the new thing. Everyone wants to go back to, to the routines that they were comfortable with. And obviously the situation that we're in is not going to resolve anytime soon. So our ability to go back the way it was is not that great. Plus patients now have this new experience of care and whether they're going to want to go back to driving two hours again to get their 15-minute visit uh, is an interesting question. Uh, so the first thing we, uh, we talked about was really how do we evaluate what we did? So when the debate comes and say, 
when people start talking about the quality of telemedicine visits or whether fraud has occurred, we'll have some really good data on that. Uh, mm -hmm. The second issue is, you know, in terms of the institutional policy, so obviously we're constantly getting advice, very conservative legal advice around things like HIPAA and application to HIPAA to these types of technologies. One of the things we talked about in the paper is actually how do we per make this permanent, this idea of, you know, innovation rather than waiting for permission and going through some regulatory process, how do we make it uh, permissible ex ante? And so we even talked about the way of creating a safe harbor. If I want to try something and the regulatory guidance is not very clear, you know, using some texting application or WhatsApp or uh, things that people are using, I could write a letter to the Office of Civil Rights at HHS. They could, mm -hmm. um, and then in fact, once I write that letter, then I'm covered for some period of time until they can make a determination about whether or not uh, we, we're in violation of the policy. And so that would be a way for us to actually move all of this forward, get some real evidence to support whether the risk-benefit trade-off, and at the same time, address some of the regulatory concerns. Uh, to the state-level policy issues, we're dealing with both privacy policies at the state level and licensure issues at the state level. You know, so we regulate medicine the way we did when we wrote the Constitution in 1787. Mm -hmm. You know, medicines, you know, in 1787, you walk to the doctor. And so it was intrastate and not interstate commerce. Uh, and the kind of technologies we're talking about today know no boundaries. I mean, lots of us are involved with talking to patients uh, in other states, talking to patients in other countries. Lots of our health systems are loving the idea that they can do virtual consults around the world. And yet we're regulated at the state level as if, again, we're, we're still practicing the old way. So that's another yeah. area to look at uh, for change. Yeah. So from the standpoint of um, the data piece of this, that's a question that people keep coming up because the data privacy laws, they change. First of all, they are changing. And as we think about how we're going to um, break the transmissions chains, so much of what we need to be looking at is people's data. We need to know who they've been, where they've been around so that we start doing contact tracing. What what are you what are you seeing as far as models or not models policies that are going to help us to keep the transmission rate low um interrupt those cycles and at the same time maintain people's civil civil rights their civil liberties their privacy and and sensitivity yeah i mean i think this is really challenging we google stood up and uh, uh really interesting idea about looking at mobility based on cell phone data. I, I've done some work with them. You know, they they uh, built a map for me of access to healthcare anywhere in the world. Um, you know, so the capabilities they have are really amazing. Uh, I think there's two issues. One is individual contact tracing and private opt-in and opt-out. But the other issue is aggregate data. So um, I think one of the things that's really interesting is, and Kate Baker uh, at Chicago has uh, shown some of these data, irrespective of whether or not I know where you are as an individual, can I know what the pattern of social interaction is in your community? And that would help me say, well, you know what, Menlo Park is being safe. So even if, if our county has an issue, the people in this community don't need to, to be have the same rules as people in another community. And I think it'll be really interesting to see if we can get to that level of granularity on some of these tools. The other piece this is bringing up you know, in terms of opt-in, opt-out, and this is a broader issue uh, for digital, is who is the solution architected around? 
And right now, if you think about our electronic health record systems like Epic or Cerner, they're really architected around the provider. The idea that you're infecting, potentially infecting your social network, you know, my electronic health record, Stanford, doesn't help me with that question. Really, yeah. what I want to know is more about you as an individual. But that actually brings up a broader issue about your own access to your health data. If you came to Stanford for one service and, you, you know, you, you told me you moved to, you know, you, you were out here and then you're in Austin. Well, happen, what happened if you got a visit here and a visit in Austin? How does... How did people find out about that? The um, for orthopedic surgery, um, you know, I, I was talking with Bill Garrett at Duke uh, a long time ago, and he was talking about revisions. And I, uh, uh, I, I said, you know, I got a. He, he was nice enough to give me a a, a repair, and a, I have a screw in my knee. I had no idea I had it or where it came from, uh, but I said, you know, this makes no sense. Why don't we register these things? Why don't I have, as a patient, have a record of these things? Uh, and we've um, that's now migrated to this idea of personal health records, where you take all your data with you as you move forward. So when you have to do, you're in a new city and you need a revision, uh, you're not stripping the screws in the OR, but you know actually what kind of equipment the the patient received uh, the last time uh, they they saw somebody. And so I think as we generalize more and more, we're going to see the, you know. Besides the fact that we could do digital, uh, we might want to migrate to architectures for data that make a lot more sense. And, yeah, and, I was going to say, it's been really interesting spending time with the epidemiology community because so much of trying to plan our resources, plan who's safe to open and when, is based on data that doesn't exist in our medical record. It's actually not even health data, it's behavior data. And it's an aggregate. I mean, and it's been very interesting to look at how we've been working with major employers and retail environments and to take a look at how many people actually came into work, how many people were riding the bus, what's the um, CO2 emission. So we're using data that exists outside of our health record to really help us understand where do we think those likely spots are that will be safe and we can open up safely and those spots that are at greater risk. So, and again, it goes back to this individual data, aggregate data, and um, should you be able to know all of the places that I've been to and who I've been around? Yeah, you, you know, but I think we can the, generalize uh, a little bit more. Nick Christakis uh, a while ago did some work off the Framingham data set yeah. and looked at smoking cessation and, uh, and obesity. And both of those actually were, were group activities. So people and their friends quit smoking together. People and their friends change their dietary habits together. And in healthcare, we don't, we don't see that. We see one person at a time. And so it may be, and we give the same advice to everybody. Well, that, and we have this amazing obesity epidemic. Imagine instead if I had data on your community, your network, your individual social network, you know, the Facebook view of the world. Uh, mm -hmm. To a health record, you you know, I would think about how to influence your health and your behaviors entirely differently. You know, there, and I could give you much more tailored and nuanced recommendations, and maybe we could get uh, compliance up from wherever we're at 50, 60% up to much higher. So I think we're just at the beginning, but I think all of these ideas that we're drawing on right now give us a glimpse to wait it wait a second, maybe the, maybe the data we're collecting and the architecture we've developed for the data collection uh, are not the ones that we need to, to move forward. 
So in thinking very specifically about orthopedic care and um, policies around um, digital health, digital tools, we're, you know, we've had a very short period of time to be working with these. We don't have a whole lot of experience yet. Um, what we have has been quite interesting. We've had more volume than we've had time to take a look at what what we're learning, what we're seeing. Can you, um, I mean, just based on this small time frame, the small experience, what are some of the gains that we need to protect, you know, from the standpoint of being able to deliver better, safer, um, more um, value-based care or valuable care is probably a better way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I think we go back to what are the, what are the, I would say, to start with, what are the services we're providing and how do we describe them as this combination of, of you know, in-person and, and virtual? And so even, you know, what's a visit, what's the 90 day around a surgery? How do we think about that? You know, what, how do we describe that and chart that and bill for that in ways that are agnostic to the technology that we're using to do those things? Uh, so so I we think just that, refer to it as a visit or an encounter. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, at some level, Kaiser as a capitated system has been doing a lot of this virtual for a lot longer than the rest of us. But we, you know, a lot of things that we do are predicated on site of care. If I do a 90-day bundle and I have to do a patient-reported outcome assessment, you know, we, there's ways we're doing that that's, again, nurse-administered or physician-administered or in-person-administered, and can we move those things digitally? But then I think we can come up with the, you know, the next horizon is what's, you know, given that, you know, if I, if I put you in a room with our creative MBA students here at Stanford or our technology students, you know, what is the vision that you'd want to do for your practice? you know, how can I do digital assessments or remote physical exams? You know, can I send a patient a video and have the computer look at how they do some activity and give me a report back? You know, do I need to see this person or not? A lot, you know, obviously we spend a lot of time in our office screening out people rather than screening in. You know, the idea of practicing at the top of your license, imagine you saw 20 people a week, all of whom needed your service, rather than 100 people a week, 80 of which don't need your service, didn't need to come in, and you're wondering why they got referred to you. So, you know, can we build new types of screening tools to help us, you know, make our make the patient's lives better, make our time more efficient, and hopefully have a, a greater impact on the patients that we see? So, um, so those are some of the policies, and, and they really are very much from the site specific. So we become agnostic to that. We become agnostic to the delivery or the the medium in which we're we're interacting, and we're mo- more focused on: Are we addressing the problem, and are we doing it in a way that's safe? I think the other part too that we want to be is good stewards of our resources. Are we doing it as efficiently as possible? Hopefully, in the realm that we can actually serve more, because we we have we've talked about this multiple times. There has been there is a shortage of practitioners. Every single you know whether it's number of surgeons we have, the number of nurses. So are there ways, you know, when you're thinking about using the talent pool that we have, removing, this has been some of the real challenges that we've heard about is the um, burden on documentation. What do we need to do in this policy response? Because a lot of those documentation rules were relaxed, or it's, I mean, I think in many cases they were just ignored because you couldn't really meet them in the, the situation of having to wear all this PPE. So there was a lot of regulation that we weren't following and they weren't enforcing all of that. 
what can we do with our policy response to address in this digital age, removing some of the frustration? Because that's what we hear so much is the medical record and using it creates enormous amounts of stress and burnout. So we have this moment. How do we capitalize on this? Yeah, we, that goes beyond the article that we wrote, but uh, but absolutely. I know, I'm, 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 no, I'm no, like, no, that's perfectly fine. Um, <laughs> Taking advantage I, of the fact that we got you here. Anyone who's anyone who's had to enter a, a a record in one of these systems has a very strong opinion about it. Um, you know, we designed. You know, I'll I'll pick on Epic. Uh, my friends at Epic. Epic is a billing system. The billing system was designed to meet the requirements of what was you know what was a paper system that was mostly designed so that I could audit it very efficiently. You had to do this Chinese menu of services. You know, if you, this level, you basically have to say you did this, that, and the other thing, because that, if, if I sent an accountant in, they could audit that very easily. And so that's the basic foundation of all of these things. This idea of how do I hold you? How can I audit what you're doing? Uh, so that, and then build a billing system so that I can withstand an audit uh, and meet all those requirements. And it was never designed to make the experience better for me and my patient. That was not the requirement. And so, you know, when you think about the next generation, again, in this digital world, um, if you had a patient with a personal health record uh, and you submit it, you know, why do we have to submit bills? What level of granularity do we need to get to with submitting bills? And we've actually documented uh, some of this uh, for a primary care visit. We, we, were, we actually calculated and reported in JAMA, cost us $20.49 to submit a bill for primary care, it's much more for orthopedic surgeons. And, uh, you know, at a, an annual level for a primary care doc, we're spending $100,000 a year submitting bills. And the question is why, what are we getting out of that? And as we go to this new world, you know, can we use visual documentation? Can we take pictures of things and have that be representations? You know, uh, laying hands on a patient is great unless you're in COVID. But the truth of the matter is, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do, when I see patients in the hospital now, they've already had thousands of dollars worth of imaging. They already had their echo before they come up to the floor. You know, me listening for a murmur after the echo doesn't add a lot of value. So, you know, again, we're doing a lot of things because we always did them or because of the way the payment mechanisms were set up. Uh, but it's really time to rethink all of those issues. You know, all of us could say we've had enough. Let's let's think of a much simpler way of doing this, and and get back to spending our time, you know, interacting with patients, but using the tools to take you know do a lot of the low value add. I saw one practice in Chicago where the patient fills out a questionnaire. When they fill out the questionnaire, it actually auto populates the electronic health record. Uh, you don't get the questionnaire as a doctor, and the doctor has to transcribe it. You know, so lots of different ways we can think about using technology to make our lives much simpler, much better. So in this digital health policy response, this is a, a moment for, I think, particularly um, at the institutional level and then also at the regulatory level for us to speak very loudly and make sure that we're not putting in hurdles or compliance or checklist items that just really are not suited to a digital world. And make sure that we look at this and say, this this is this would have made sense in an analog world when you didn't have those technologies that are available to you. Some of it's safety, some of it's to you know make sure that we're 
doing appropriate care and that actually the care that we um, say we did, we did. So there are many things, but it sounds what I'm hearing is that you're saying we really need to go back and reevaluate the policies that exist and make sure that in this moment, that part of our response to this is let's make sure that we don't keep taking legacy things that fit to an analog world into a new digital reality. Yeah, I think that you've summed that up really nicely. I mean, we've used digital tools to recreate our analog processes. Yeah. Um, and instead of rethinking how would you do these things in a digital way and how do we really make the most of the technology that's available to us? Because you know, somehow our phones are much more facile at doing the kind of activities that we want to do than, you know, this incredibly expensive and elaborate uh, technology that surrounds us. Yeah. But one of the, so we've talked, um, you know, we talk a lot about policies and regulation. We think about them from the standpoint of operational, but you've made a very strong point that one of the keys to this response is we got a lot of trust to rebuild. You've got a slide that you shared you know, again, The Economist, let's go take a look at. We just heard a presentation by two folks talking about the overall healthcare economy, looking at it at a, at a global level. Can we go ahead and get that slide brought up um, to take a look at? So on Thursdays each week, the unemployment data comes out. And um, I'm not sure if we've got that slide yet, but let's, let's, just, let's just go ahead and give the numbers. So in the space of eight weeks, we are at how many? It's uh, last I think I saw forty million people. Forty million um, people lost, uh, yeah, uh, have lost their jobs. And so, you know, what we need to think about, and and maybe Jamie uh, covered some of this, uh, but obviously, you know, a big bulk of payment models in the United States are related to employment-based health insurance. And so there were about 160, well, actually about 200 million people, uh, which are workers and their dependents that are covered through employment-based health insurance. So if 40 million people lost their jobs, it's likely that more than 40 million people have now lost their health insurance. So that's an enormous, enormous impact uh, that we're yeah. going to be seeing right now. A lot of people, even if, as they open up, are saying, well, there's a challenge. We don't have demand. You know, the patients aren't queuing up the way they were, you know, a couple months ago. And I think there's several reasons for that. So the first, you talked a little bit about rebuilding trust. Uh, so we've now scared the American public that healthcare is an incredibly dangerous place for people to go. Look at the pictures on the news of how sick people are and how the healthcare workers are getting infected. Why would I ever want to get exposed to that? Um, and so we need to start with uh, this idea about rebuilding trust. And in fact, we're going to create a safe experience for patients when they come in. My wife was remarking uh, the last time we went to the supermarket, how clean it was. It had never been that clean in, in all the years we've uh, been going. You know, and they've been working for the last two months to think about how do I create an experience for pay, you know, customers uh, that will make them want to come back. And, and so in healthcare, we got to do the same thing. You know, do we have this? Yeah. yeah, I just I, I, say, I want to um, take us back onto the screen. But before we go, I just want to highlight from the standpoint of the th this graph is is stunning. I mean, it's from the standpoint that's over 15 years. And in this very short period of time where people had some sense of familiarity, uh, security um, for this many people, that just went away. And so um, let's just. 
um, I hadn't seen the, I mean, it just came out yesterday, so I hadn't, I hadn't seen it. Um, and I was, um, <laughs> catching my breath once again from, from the standpoint, but it brings up from the standpoint of when we think about those policies, you've got a group of people who were in care pathways. They were being seen. Now they actually, what are the policies looking like? What's this digital health policy response when for many people, they, their care was interrupted because they no longer have coverage. Well, I think that's that's a local institutional response. What are we going to do about this? Uh, what are we going to do about insurance? You know, part of this trust is, you know, you're my patient. How do I, you know, come in and see me? Um, I'm not going to bankrupt you. Uh, this was, um, you know, people were afraid of the cost of medical care even when they had insurance. And mm -hmm. so now, you know, are people going to come in? Is this really a priority when they're struggling to pay for rent? Uh, I think that's one set of issues. The other set of issues is, you know, even here at Stanford, uh, people are having uh, to take time off from work. Uh, and so, you know, more, you know, not only did 40 million people lose their jobs so far, lots of other people have had economic impacts and we're going to continue to see repercussions of this. And so, People with high deductible health plans or people, you know, even with the regular deductible to see an orthopedic surgeon, it might be $50, $7,500 plus whatever the ancillary test, the payments are for the ancillary test, you know, are people going to have that amount of money in their pockets? Uh, and so how do we think about our pay, our collection policies? Uh, how do we think about you know, co-pays and deductibles? I think those are all things that are going to be huge barriers right now between now and when the economy settles out. Yeah, and um, what we didn't mention, but I think is really stunning, is that with this reduction, I mean, the number of unemployed, a huge number of those are actually in healthcare. Um, the number of nurses, physicians who have um, had their, they've been furloughed, their positions have been terminated. Um, we have a lot of people in the healthcare space, despite having this shortage of, of a healthcare workforce, many of those numbers. And do you do you recall? I'm I'm thinking it was four million. Or what what percentage of the unemployment right now is from the healthcare work, the healthcare sector? Uh, I don't know off the top, but as you think about it, I I just saw some data recently from California, and it was a couple of percentage of the workforce. You know what we've seen, and it's been written about a lot in the newspapers. So we kind of have two things going concurrently. One is we're taking care of the immediate needs of the COVID population, uh, but the you know reduction in demand from the you know the state mandating that we stop elective surgeries uh, meant that a lot of the high-paying specialties uh, like orthopedic surgery have seen tremendous reductions in volume, and so that has had repercussions in terms of staff. But you know the Times is the newspapers are starting to ask questions: Why is it that we were so that the healthcare business model was so predicated on these elective surgeries for commercially insured patients, uh, and you know why is it that we're so vulnerable to this to this crisis at this point? Uh, yeah. So I think that'll be really interesting as we move forward. Again, when will that demand come back to where it was? Is a real open question. Um, yeah. You know, if the, if that forty million people moved into Medicaid, fifty that could be twenty five percent of the commercial market moving into Medicaid. If you know, assuming they're eligible, or we expand the Medicaid rolls, uh, but I I think that's going to have a big uh, hangover effect on the practice of medicine. You know, the economics of medicine for some period of time. 
Yeah. Well, it has, I see, and again, going with the digital health policy, I've seen many where a lot of the healthcare plans have made any of your first visits, they will be virtual visits. So they're using the, the digital or, or the virtual experience as one way to, I guess, deliver more care at a lower cost point. Um, so there's, you know, what have you seen as far as um, at the federal level and the payer level, as far as policies that they're putting in place that are going to impact our business models? And I, I, I'm curious, are, are you seeing where some of these policies are helping us to more readily embrace digital? Or are we seeing people push back away from it? I, I think we're seeing, you know, I think we're seeing both at the same time. This is the, <laughs> the digital, you know, it's like the, the digital is, um, you know, we need things like One Medical uh, that just went public right before COVID, uh, mm-hmm. closed our offices and just moved entirely virtual, you know, uh, yeah. during the peak of all of this. Um, but again, a lot of us grew up in a certain business model. Uh, and, uh, you know, our practice is based on that. We bought equipment based on that. Uh, we rented space based on that. Real estate. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, unraveling that, uh, is, is really going to be an issue. Um, you know, there's just a headline uh, in New York, commercial tenants aren't paying rent for retail spaces. Um, you know, when are we going to decide that we need to do something differently? A lot of us are working in places that just built new buildings or new resources or new outpatient care centers. Uh, and uh, the people that, uh, you know, own the mortgages on those really want to, you know, have patients back to pay for that. And so, you know, there would be significant adjustments that need to be made. Should we say, you know, reduce the volume of in-person visits to the level that we see right now? You know, that would require enormous restructuring. Yeah, um, and so, so much of um, orthopedic care is in a surgery center or in a hospital and those places are also seeing financial difficulties so i think i what most of the folks in the audience um they're looking to us to help them what would you recommend that they start thinking about uh, not think about what should they be doing today and in the coming weeks and particularly as far as as policies are being evaluated and written what would your recommendation be, your prescription on how we need to respond to this this whole, I mean, we've got a plethora of policies that we're looking at. What should the orthopedic community be advocating for and against? Yeah, I mean, so as a researcher, the first thing you're going to advocate for is research. You know, we really need to evaluate what happened. Uh, how do we, you know, uh, did this work or not work? Did patients get better or not? Do they like this virtual versus in person? How hard was it to, for us to transition uh, to even just giving patients an option? So I think that that's the first thing, and we need to, you know, that w- that's going to be really helpful data. Uh, the second thing is, you know, a lot of us have been talking about innovation for a long period of time. We're talking about frustration with some of the aspects of practice today. We're talking about the administrative burden. This is really an amazing time to say, well, the constraints are off. What are you going to do? And what would we like the world to look like? Um, you know, it's much easier to take home more pay if you have less people working in your office. There's just no question about that. You know, especially patients that are not doing, you know, people not doing patient-facing tasks. And so what would it take for us to get to a different vision of how we could practice, you know, medicine using all these tools or using new kinds of services rather than, you know, the very people-intensive uh, way we've organized care? 
I would say, you know, there'll be, I'm imagine the people listening are going to break into two groups. One is going to entirely embrace the digital realm and say, boy, I could do this much, or I could do even more and develop really interesting elegant solutions. Uh, and then there'll be people that are, you know, have been practicing for 20 years in a certain environment, uh, made lots of financial commitments, you know, really liked their practice and the staff they built and the team they built. And, and this is going to be a very hard uh, era for them. I would say, you know, a lot of people think I, I, a couple of kind of broader themes. For years, I've been saying, you know, transformation is not linear in, in markets and is not going to be linear in healthcare. And I didn't know what it was going to be that was going to be nonlinear, but COVID is the. <laughs> you weren't thinking exponential. I certainly yeah. wasn't. <laughs> so, uh, but that's that was a nonlinear change. And then, you know, there's a lot of hope that this is going to be an incredibly steep V shape, recovery, U shape, whatever we want to call it. You know, there are a lot of things that could lead to really, really severe tails. Yeah. Um, you know, people don't pay rent and landlords don't pay their mortgages. You know, the people who hold the mortgage pools, you know, are not getting their money. Their reverberations throughout the economy, they're really structural and will take a long time to unwind. And so, you know, while all of us would want to go back as quickly as possible to January, December, you know, and, you know, if, if in fact this is going to be our reality for some period of time, even after a vaccine, a vaccine's not going to send those 40 million people back to work immediately. You know, we need to be thinking the next year or two are going to look very different for all of us. And uh, it's a time to really be creative and build something new and exciting. At the, you know, there will always be a need for medicine. There will always be a need for healthcare. There will always yeah. be a, a need for orthopedic surgeons. I know I always need them and, uh, and, and, you know, what they provide to the healthcare community. Uh, but it's a really interesting time to us for us to rethink what, what that is and how we're going to do it. Yeah. And it's a good time to be washing our hands. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for spending time um, thinking about what our digital health policy response needs to be. And I feel optimistic. Thank you for uh, giving us some, some guidance on what we need to be doing. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye and see you again soon. Thank you All so right, much. Thank, thank you. You've been great. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. We aim to provide our global audience with practical and actionable knowledge for modernizing the way they deliver care to the orthopedic patient. If you like the podcast, please rate us on your favorite player or tell a friend. It only takes a minute and it makes a huge difference to us. Many thanks to our friends at Outcomes Rocket, the Health Podcast Network, and our producer, Dr. Sheila Toro, for their work on this season. Be well, stay safe. See you next time on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.